Hi everyone, today I have Vicky Church with me from AIG. Hi Vicky. Hi Catherine. We are going to be talking about Vicky's experiences of having a heart attack, her recovery and how the event has led to some key discoveries for her and her family. I'm also going to be talking through some case studies of arranging protection insurance when someone has a heart condition. This is the Practical Protection Podcast. So, Vicky, what's the latest with you then? What's going on? So, um, well, lockdown's been interesting. Actually, um, it quite suits me being in lockdown because it means I don't have to get up really early <laughs> and uh, get on a busy tube and train and get into London. So, I think we're all living that, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, so it's been good. Um, busy as, as, as with everybody, with family and the kids and, and, you know, the changing rules that are COVID. Um, obviously, the recent one that came in today, which is obviously um, Monday the 14th, regarding the six people, very confusing um, whether that's you know, what you can do in terms of can, the, can my son play in his basketball team, can't he? Obviously, yeah. he's at school. But So, yeah, so just like everybody else, I think, just sort of uh, finding a way through the, the strange times that we're living in and just, you know, surviving absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. It, it is just sort of all a little bit you know crazy at the moment so uh, i so like i put it out on social last night that so we got a, a text message like 10 to 10 last night to say that um there was a teacher in my son's year i don't even know if it's his teacher but there's a teacher within his year who's been tested positive and so the entire school was locked down it was just that kind of thing of right okay what does that mean for us what does that mean for obviously so my, my son's years in lockdown what does it mean for my other children are they allowed to go out and apparently they are allowed to go out which just doesn't seem to make any sense to me whatsoever um you know and uh yeah it's um i think it's all still very very strange times but we're all plodding through and getting through it so that's uh that's the main thing so last time that we had the um podcast um we did have a little truth or life feature we'll just go through that quite quickly today so basically i just need you to decide who was telling um, a truth or a lie because both myself and alan said that we had been stung by a bee that morning oh i think you've had quite a lot of bad luck recently with some <laughs> one thing and another so i'm gonna say it was a lie you didn't need that <laughs> Yes, that's very true. And thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't get stung by me. I'm touching wood every single way possible. I've never been stung by anything. So clearly now I'm going to get stung by everything in the next month. Um, yeah, Alan Blessing got stung by a bee on his, um, he, he does sort of like boot camps, obviously very socially distanced. Yeah. And, um, and apparently this, this woman behind him shrieked and he stopped to see if she was all right, at which point another bee came out and got him and then someone else oh. got it in there and it was just, yeah. Um, so yeah, so it was, it was poor Alan and it's just, just started to actually disappear now. He seemed to have some kind of a reaction to it. So um, bless him, he's just had everything recently, food yeah. poisoning, now bee stings, yeah. 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 <laughs> it can be quite nasty, a bee sting, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't, it didn't look very nice. Um, yeah, I was quite grateful it wasn't me. Uh, <laughs> Um, so Vicky thank you obviously so much for joining me and I think you know when we're going to be chatting about things I think a lot of people have probably heard from you and sort of seen you speak and it's always incredible to hear uh, your experiences and it's just it'll be really nice to to have that chat with you and for people who haven't heard your personal story as well can you take us back to the beginning of you know everything that started in 2018 and and what happens with you yeah, sure. So um, I am fit uh, or was a fit and healthy um, person, mum of three. Um, I ran regularly at least 5k every other day, 10k every week. Um, I was a vegetarian since I was 13, um, never smoked um, and lived quite a healthy life. 
Um, so on the way to the cover awards on May 2018, um, when I was on the train and I broke out in a, a massive sweat, um, the last thing I thought that was going to happen was for me to have a heart attack. Um, so I was on the train, very sweaty. I was about to go to the cover awards. I got off at St Pancras. I climbed up the stairs and um, I was all dressed up as you are when you're going to the cover awards. And I looked down at my hair, which is quite long, and um, it was soaking wet. Um, and I was literally dripping with sweat. And I thought, well, with the best will in the world, I'm not turning up to an awards <laughs> ceremony like this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I had my phone, so I took my phone out um, and I actually rang Holly Ewing, who, who's in my team, yeah. and said to her, Holly, I'm not, I'm not coming. She asked me if I was okay, because I've never been off sick and I'm not sick. And I said, I didn't feel very well. I thought there was something, you know, wrong. And um, I was actually going to just go home. So I turned back down, turned around, walked back down the stairs. Um, and literally, as I got to the platform, um, I started feeling really, really bad. Sort of the um, platform was swimming. Um, I felt there was an elephant, like there was an elephant sitting on my chest. I couldn't breathe. But the doors opened right in front of me. So I got on the train. Yeah. Um, it was an empty train because it was going back towards where I live in St Albans and obviously with no commuters. I got on the train, literally as I got on the train and the door shut, I, um, I collapsed. I don't remember too much about the actual collapse, but I was by the doors. Um, I couldn't move my left side. I felt like um, I was being crushed. Um, and I didn't know what it was, but I knew it was serious and I knew... Um, really quite quickly in my head that um, this was, you know, this was, this was quite life-threatening. There was, there was, you know, I felt like I was going to die quite literally. Um, I had my phone in my hand still um, because obviously I've just been speaking to Holly. Um, luckily, because I don't think I could have fished it out of my, my bag otherwise. Um, so there I am all dressed up, but lying on the, on the train just by the doors. I couldn't see anybody around me. It was an empty train. Um, so I had my phone and I text, uh, kind of text my husband. I thought I text him something seriously wrong. I'm on the train back to St Albans. Please get me off the train. Um, when I read it back later, it didn't really read like that, but, but he mm. got the gist. Um, and, um, it was a, it was a 20, 19, 20 minute journey back to St Albans. And, um, I remember going, it was lucky I was on the fast train, not the all stopper. And I remember yeah. seeing a few stations as I was going. And I was in and out of consciousness and I saw Radlick, which is the station before St Albans. And I just, I felt like, um, I just felt like I couldn't hang on. So I actually picked up my phone and started looking at pictures of my kids and thinking, God, I've got to hang on. I don't know what this is. I really don't know what this is. I thought I was having a massive asthma attack and I just, yeah. my lungs had collapsed or something. I didn't, I didn't understand. Anyway, I, I remember just seeing St Albans sign. And then that, and then next thing I remember is I was in hospital. Um, and I was being told that I had just had a, a massive heart attack um, to which I replied, I can't have had a massive heart attack. I'm a vegetarian and I don't smoke. How, how can I have had a heart attack? Um, and um, unfortunately, I had, I'd had several heart attacks and oh. um, they put me on. I was on, I was on basically on a, on a life support machine for, for a while, but conscious. Um, so I stayed at Stevenage Hospital, which is where I was, the Lister, for four or five days, just while they tried to stabilise me. I couldn't get up. 
Um, I wasn't allowed to, to, to move, basically. I had to stay still. They were, I, I could feel there was something very wrong. Yeah. Um, and then um, four days after I'd been at Stevenage, um, in the middle of the night, I suffered a further heart attack and they took me by blue light um, down to the Royal Brompton Hospital where I underwent an emergency triple heart bypass yeah. um, in the middle of the night. Um, so my husband just made it. Uh, he didn't make it in time to see me before I went to theatre, but he was there while I was having the operation. Um, and um, as before I went in, they told me that it, I was critical and um, they were going to do it, obviously everything they could. Um, so they took, uh, so, so they very quickly told me that they were going to take um, the arteries out of my, both my legs yeah. um, and use that to, to create a bypass. Um, so when I woke up, um, I mean, I, I didn't mind. I, I realized that they were going to cut my chest open and open me up and I was going to have a horrendous scar. Um, but one thing I've always liked is wearing short skirts or shorts. And I just yeah. thought, oh my God, not my legs. I can cope with my chest, <laughs> but not my legs. So apparently the first thing I did when I woke up is say, um, What's, what, what, which leg did you go? Did you do both legs? What happened? <laughs> um, but actually the, the surgeon at the time um, realized that I was younger than their average um, triple bi heart bypass patient, also a foot female. So they actually did it um, with a plastic surgeon um, and oh. there's hardly any scars on my leg now. So, so they took the artery from my left leg. The benefit of having long legs is you only need one artery taken, not, not two. Oh, that's um, and they created uh, a bypass. So, so that was that. And then I was in hospital for two weeks at the Brompton recovering. I was in a ward with um, six other lovely ladies, but all who were in their seventies or eighties who had all gone through the same thing as me and how they were coping was, was amazing because you couldn't even sit up, you know, breaking a sternum um, bone, which you have to do to get mm. to the heart um, was, you know, was, was probably the worst thing. But because my sternum was so thick because I was young, unfortunately it also broke three ribs and my collarbone. So um, rather than just recover from a heart operation, you know, it was actually the broken bones that created the most problem for me because just pushing yourself, you can't even just push yourself up in bed or yeah. you can't get out of bed. It's amazing how much you use your arms just to, you know, to get out of bed. So, so that's what happened. Um, and um, so it was, a, it was a very traumatic time. It was very hard to be, um, be in hospital for someone who, you know, is busy, busy, busy. And then I had to just literally stay there. So I was in between completely bored um, completely frustrated and in quite a lot of pain. So, um, but I, I went home sooner than most patients because I was younger. Um, and that's really when the recovery started when I, when I came home. Um, and it was actually when I got home that I realized, um, that, um, you know, I'd, I'd had this heart attack. I thought, Oh, I've got critical illness cover. I should really, uh, I should really do something about that. Yeah. So, um, that's when I started picking up the phone to, to, all the all the facilities all the things that could help me so um, I had food for private medical insurance as well but because my operation was an emergency you know obviously I was in the best hands with the NHS I didn't need to use it yeah. but Bupa have you know if every night you're in hospital you get a, a, an amount of money so I've been in quite a long time so that was quite yeah. a nice amount of money um, I affected my critical illness policy and obviously picked up the phone to best doctors which was um, part of my policy as well so that's yeah. what happened. I was going to say, I mean, it's just, and I know that that's just in a sense, 
one set of events that happened. And I know there's been events, you know, and things that have been happening since as well. But I think, you know, coming back to that, so, I mean, that, it just, just an incredible amount of things, you know, and I think, you know, probably when we think of someone having a heart attack, we don't necessarily think about all that extra bit about the, the breaking of the sternum, the potential broken bones and things like that as part of the recovery, which are obviously, you know, not pleasant things, but potentially essential things to get to the heart yeah, and, you yeah. know, to be able to, um, to, to get that. But, you know, I think that whole thing of, you know, that, that, that retelling, your retelling of the story about yourself on the train, uh, you know, that's, for me, that feels quite emotional as well, because obviously I, I have panic attacks and things. And I'm thinking, oh, Lord, what on earth would I have felt like if I'd been like in that situation? So, you know, yeah, I think it takes an incredible amount of strength to have faced all that and to be able to talk about it in such a, well, obviously I can look at you and sort of see you speaking fine and it's quite a chirpy way, actually, the way that you're able <laughs> yeah. to speak about it. I have spoken about it a few times. And it was a couple of years ago. And actually, um, you know, what happened afterwards was um, when I went into the cardiac rehab, unit um i met uh, so i was i was with seven other people all men all, all in their 60s and um just talking about it actually with them who'd all yeah. been through the same and and some more traumatic experiences um in in more strange places it was like where's the strangest place you had a heart attack <laughs> um so you know i can talk about it now and i'm I, and i actually became um and i still am a counselor for um for particularly women and mums who um, are in the same situation and uh, are about to have an emergency heart bypass to explain to them what to expect because um, until you've been through it, the trauma nurses are fantastic, but they cannot tell you what it's going to feel like and what to prepare for. So um, I was very fortunate, actually, before I had my bypass, um, Darren Spricks, who was the managing director of AIG Life and then managing director of Pacific Life Re, who's also a good friend, He'd gone through it literally three or four months before me. Right. Um, he'd had a quadruple heart bypass and he took the time and effort um, to explain it to me. I was in tears. It was about two o'clock in the morning, but he did a fantastic job explaining to me what, what to expect. And without him, actually, it would have been so much more traumatic. And I wanted to do that for, for other people yeah. and, ha and have done that about five or six times now. I've had a few middle of the night calls to say, yeah. will I speak to somebody? I was going to say, I mean, that's that's such a powerful way to channel what's happened into something yeah. that's obviously so so incredibly positive for the people I mean, one of the things i was wondering as well is that i know the recovery has taken you know even longer than you know obviously the, the few weeks and everything that you're in hospital but in regards to the recovery i mean what what kind of stood out as maybe really helpful for you or maybe things that you thought oh that may be helpful but actually was actually quite unhelpful in some ways is there, is there anything that really stood out as good or bad for you in your recovery so the thing that was really, um, and I actually replied to a tweet um, uh, last week from a guy who, who was about to have um, heart surgery and he said, any, any tips? And I said, you know, don't, you know, make sure you do the cardiac rehab. That, that was actually the, the best thing um, in terms of what was on offer because not, not necessarily physically, we, they do go through physical, you know, how, how to sort of recover, but more emotionally and mentally speaking to other people who had literally just been through it with you at the same time. Um, so that, that was the most helpful thing practically, obviously best doctors, which I'll explain in a second was the most valuable thing to me and my family as it, as it turns out. Um, the thing that was unhelpful, I guess, um, I think um, probably probably having to go physically to the GP surgery yeah. um, to do all the checks all the time. Yeah. Um, 
And interestingly enough, I think one positive thing that's come out of COVID, if there is something is, you know, virtual GP now is far more acceptable. And there was nothing that I did physically that could not have been done virtually. Um, so I think now um, that will be a far more acceptable way of yeah. you know, helping people post-op. And, and again, it wasn't my heart. It was my broken bones. Just physically getting in and out of a car yeah. um, was, was hard. Um, so, so, yeah. Okay, that's 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 really really helpful to know. And as you say, you know, I think the virtual GP thing, especially, helped so much by your smart health AIG is is absolutely solving at the moment. Um, yeah. So obviously, you've mentioned it a little bit now, and um, and also I know we've chatted before about it, but I know that you were able to claim on your um, critical illness policy following the heart attack. Um, so what did that mean to you and your family to be able to have that? And I know it's not just the the money; it's also the best doctors. What's that meant for you all? Yeah, so I'll be honest, because I thought, like everybody else, it's never going to happen to me. Um, I did understand the importance of critical illness cover, but I didn't have much critical illness cover. I didn't have enough. So I took out critical illness cover when I first started working at Bupa, um, and I was sort of 29 years old. So, um, and I hadn't reviewed it because I didn't feel I needed to because I was fit and healthy, which was a big mistake, and I really should have reviewed it. Um, and that's one of the benefits of having an advisor rather than doing it yourself, because an advisor obviously will, will make you review it. Um, so I've got a critical illness payment. Um, it, the um, policy, my policy was with Aviva. Um, I called them um, and told them what had happened. I also um, told them who I was because I thought that was fair. Um, and the payment was made within about six, seven days. Absolutely no problems whatsoever. So, so they were fantastic. Um, and I used the money, actually, we, we just moved home. So um, I used the money for some of the, um, the, 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 and interestingly enough, I used it for our driveway, which sounds um, quite, quite strange. But the driveway we had uh, and the path was, was, was jagged stones. It's a very old house. Right. Um, and I struggled to, to walk on it just, just literally from that. So, so the driveway was done really quickly um, and it made a difference. I could actually walk without fear of tripping over. Sounds yeah. daft now because I, I was like an 80 year old trying to walk along the path. I completely get it. I completely get yeah. it. Yeah. So yeah, that was good. So that's what I used the critical on pain for. But the best thing, of course, was Smart Health, um, which was Best Doctors, which is part of Smart Health. So um, I rang Best Doctors and I explained, obviously, I've had a heart attack. I'm a vegetarian. I don't smoke. I'm really healthy. Uh, why I've had this heart attack. So I didn't really join the dots up with um, my brother who had had a heart attack in his sleep and died um, at the age of 48. Um, so I was 49 when I had my heart attack and he was 48. He, he unfortunately died. He was quite overweight um, and um, did have a little bit of um, heart problems, not heart yeah. problems, but you know, um, high blood pressure, et cetera. So when he died at 48, we did think it was strange because he's, it wasn't that bad, but we, everyone put it down to the fact that, yeah, okay, that, that's why he's died. Yeah. So it wasn't until I had mine that Best Doctors started joining up the dots and said, well, you know, it seems strange your brother died at 48 of a heart attack. You've had a heart attack at 49. Let's look into it a bit further. So what happens is at the hospital, they're fantastic. They patch you up, uh, they make you better, and they keep an eye on you. But what they never do is try and work out why you've had a heart attack because their job is to patch you up. And if I had another heart attack, I'd go back, they'd patch me up again. 
Well, what they wouldn't do is say, you know, why is this happening and what can we do to prevent it? So Best Doctors did a fantastic job of um, asking for different types of blood tests. And one of those was something called lipoprotein A, which was something that they discovered in the US was causing quite a lot of heart attacks. Um, and it turns out that my lipoprotein A was hugely accelerated, something like 20, 30 times the, the safe limit. Right. Um, and, and then they, they concluded that um, actually this is hereditary. So what they normally find is that you know, it, it runs in families, which makes sense with my brother. So it was at that point that um, my children were completely healthy, Amy, Maya and Freddie. Um, Maya was 17 at the time. Um, uh, Freddie was 13 and, and Amy was 19. But they were healthy, but we got them tested. Hmm. And um, Freddie was fine. His lipoprotein was normal. Amy's was sort of double what it should be. But Maya, my middle daughter, um, she, hers was really accelerated as well. Um, and it, they concluded that had she, if, if we didn't have to do any intervention for her, then her heart attack age would probably be about 30, so sooner than mine. Right. And it wouldn't have mattered what her diet was, although if she had been overweight, for instance, it would have accelerated it further. Of course. So um, she's off to university actually on Thursday, but she's on medication, some of the same medication as me. Yeah. And the idea there is to prevent her having a heart attack. She's absolutely fine. She takes the medication um, and we're waiting now for further scientific um, evidence to, to, you know, to be more specific. But at the moment, the medication she's taking should help her. Yeah. Um, I'm on a couple of drugs trials uh, because I'm young and healthy. Or young, I'm not young and healthy. I wish I was. I'm younger than the average um, and healthier than the average. So I'm on two yeah. drugs trials. Um, and one of them is really, really a big one um, and is proving to be really effective for me. Um, so they'll probably put her on the drugs trial now as well. Um, and it looks at this point, it's quite early days, but it looks like this could be the breakthrough um, oh. that the world is waiting for, for, for this disease. Yeah. That's absolutely fantastic. And I know, I think as well from what you said previously as well, it's, it also, it kind of even spread out even to further into the family members as well that you were able to, yeah. this has kind of triggered a, a massive kind of snowball effect within the family of being able to see, right, this is happening, this is happening. It's just, I think it's that kind of thing of, you know, you just, you just never know how much you could help, you know, the family and obviously having yeah. that best doctors there, you know, without that there, this, this wouldn't have been found. Absolutely. Um, so, so yeah, so while I was off and bored, I did a little bit of family tree hunting like you do. Yeah. Um, and there's an absolute no-brainer trend throughout the family of at least one or two family members dying of heart problems at the age between, well, between the age of 40 and 50, um, all the way back literally until the 18th century where they didn't record it as heart attacks, but, you know, it was heart problems or died suddenly um so it's been in our family the whole time um but so that was quite interesting and fascinating and it's what's powerful is when my children have children you know they'll know to test them but my cousins were tested and my cousin's children and um, newborn baby was found to have it um so we know you know he will need to be on medication when he's older and, and stuff yeah. like that so it definitely has saved my family and best doctors not only did that um and found that they were absolutely fantastic in how they communicated with me their sympathy other advice um i spoke directly to the um mayo clinic in ohio 
um, and they were explaining, you know, this is what we think you should do. Don't, don't try, your doctors, my doctor said, oh, try and run again. Um, and they're saying, definitely don't run again. You know, walk, keep healthy. You must not run again. So I completely ignored all that and decided to run again anyway last July. And um, guess what? A week later, I had another heart attack. <laughs> so um, I decided that actually probably taking uh, a specialist advice is better than yeah. taking my GP's advice. And because because my condition is different from other heart attacks where they're, they're trying to tell you to be fit and healthy and yeah. lose weight. Mine was nothing like that. So you were already fit and healthy. And it just so happened that this was just that you genetic. Say it's a genetic thing. Yeah. But yeah, completely yeah. different set of rules. And they said to me, you know, if you accelerate your heart rate by running, you'll have another heart attack. And I did. So, um, so I won't be doing that again. Oh. <laughs> no, <laughs> please don't. <laughs> so I suppose sort of think about it is there anything that kind of like you would say to people who are maybe I don't know if they're concerned or anything about maybe some kind of family medical history or just generally if they've been in that same situation as you what would be kind of your your main things that you would want to say to people to kind of learn from your experiences so what I would say is um there's two things firstly a lot of things are genetic so, so join up the dots yourself, ask, you know, the older members of your family, you know, who, who, who had what symptoms, not necessarily died, but, you know, what happened and, and listen to them. So try and join up the dots yourself. The second thing is tenacity. So had um, Best Doctors not been involved, Best Doctors did all the genetic testing. It would have been extremely hard um, for the NHS. Like I said, the, the NHS are there to patch you up um, and make you better what they're not there necessarily to do is the investigation and for them to do all the testing is quite hard and costly. Yeah. So they, they tend not to do it. Um, so I, um, the genetic testing, they did do it in the end, but, but the, what best doctors did is gave us a really good case study history to say a good reason to do it. Yeah. Um, and best doctors presented it in such a way that, you know, they said, look, if you don't test them, more people will have heart attacks, more people will need to be treated, you'll be spending more money on bypasses or, or whatever. Yeah. Actually, this is a cost-effective thing. So they made a bit of a business case. Yeah. Um, so, so I would say genetically, you know, if you have access to Smart Health or Best Doctors, they can help you do this business case um, that will help with you know putting your case across really to the NHS to help do the genetic testing but you have to be tenacious and you have to be quite organized at one point I had a, a massive file and you know everything had to go into that file because you had to you you know you have to really um make an effort so you can't just sit back and think oh well the doc you know tell my GP and it'll all be fine you actually have to work at it yourself to yeah. to actually get to the answers I think that's absolutely you know, I think that's fair to say and I, I think there's you know, it's very clear as well for me saying as well, it's not, a, it's not a criticism of the NHS at all. It's just that it is so short on resources absolutely. and they've got absolute, you know, they have to obviously do a lot of the, um, I, th I, I, so I tend to think of the sort of like more the reactive kind of activities rather than sort of like the preventative in a sense, whereas these things that we can get like best doctors and other support yeah. services, they're, they're there to hopefully help us with the preventative side of things. 100%. And also, if you have got private medical insurance, then use it if you are, are feeling like heavy chested, out of breath, something strange happening, then then use that so that you aren't putting the strain on the NHS. Um, so when I had my second heart attack, um, I obviously knew exactly what it was. Um, and I literally 
was having a heart attack and rang my <laughs> rang a consultant and got um, the first uh, cardiologist appointment I could. Um, and they, I went in and they said they they looked took one look at me and was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's have a quick look. Put you on the ECG, and they went, "Oh my God, you're having a heart attack!" Went, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, and uh, so had me in that night, and yeah. and I had some more stents put in. But so so I tried not to put more strain on the NHS. After all, it was my own yes. fault the second time. Wow. Well, it, the GP did tell you to run. Yes. So I was going to say. <laughs> So saying, imagine the next the time you saw listen them to the specialists. Just... <laughs> they know what they're talking about. absolutely well i think um, sorry, moving on to the next bit it's i think it's only fair to be clear that at the moment due to coronavirus that there's some options to get insurance when you have a heart condition and not being as easily available it's not every heart condition but just some circumstances and being able to get the insurance really comes down to a lot of factors like the type of heart condition when the diagnosis was made the medications the treatments and how it's really affecting that person's ability to live and work Things like being a smoker, having a sort of like a respiratory condition, high BMI, diabetes can all add up to making getting insurance slightly more trickier. Not saying it's impossible, just maybe a little bit trickier. Uh, so for people outside of the insurance world that could be listening, the reason that's become a bit tricky is that understandably, insurers are trying to sort of respond to a risk that they don't have a lot of data on. Insurers tend to work off their, their data is usually decades old worth of like analyses of things that have happened and patterns they can see. And with coronavirus, we've got about six months worth of data. So it's actually, I know it may seem frustrating sometimes as, a, as someone who's applying for insurance as potentially as an advisor when you're trying to put things forward. But I think, you know, sometimes you do have to bear in mind that underwriters are they are working in very much an unknown and this is a business of risk and it's it's very hard for them to sort of put that all into kind of a determination of what terms could be in a sense we're all working with this as say this unknown so i think it's important that you know we can say that there's still some options within the standard insurance market for a lot of people but it may sometimes be that a specialist insurer is needed and that doesn't necessarily mean silly prices so I do have a case study today about somebody who had a, well, a couple who had a couple of medical conditions and just the different things we were able to look at for them. So the main thing was that this was a couple in their early 60s and they'd taken out a, a capital and repayment mortgage of £100,000 over 19 years. There was a, a very, very clear need for some life insurance for them to have out. Obviously, we went through the different things with them. In regards to their medical history, there was a few things for, in a sense, for both of them. For one of the lives, they had had some atrial fibrillation that had been diagnosed about six years before um, speaking to us, and it had been treated with um, what's known as ablation therapy on four different occasions. The last time they received that treatment had been about two years before they'd seen us, just under two years before they'd seen us. But there's obviously all follow-up tests had shown that everything was clear. And, you know, sometimes there was still some symptoms of tiredness, but generally, you know, everything was all completely fine and dandy now. There'd also been some episodes or two episodes of what's known as a pulmonary embolism. And they'd first happened probably about 18 years or so before they'd spoken to us. And then again, about six years prior to speaking to us, which is what sort of um, triggered the whole diagnosis of the atrial fibrillation. Obviously, we're on different medications just to make sure that they're all sort of settled down and, and that was fine. There was some kind of associated distress at the time, but you know, generally that wasn't going to be a massive concern. There was no, in regards to mental health side of things, there was nothing that the, the symptoms that would maybe cause insurers to think that there was maybe any kind of additional risks. And there was um, a few physical conditions, but nothing that would sort of like cause a, a, any concern for the life insurance application side of things. For the other person that we were 
also going to be covering by the policy. They'd had um, depression and anxiety for around 10 years. And it was something where the symptoms were still kind of, I think, ongoing, but not sort of anything that was sort of actively affecting them in, in many ways. It's, it's very, very hard when it comes to things like depression and anxiety, because, you know, if you say to someone who's had depression or being anxious, you say to them, when were you last anxious or depressed? It's, it's quite hard because it's kind of like, where's that definition between what is an anxious and depressed feeling because of the condition or just that feeling because that's just every day-to-day life and what we're all experiencing especially when we're in the middle of coronavirus as well and things are in a very very unusual situation for many many people but for this person as well there um, there was also the the added consideration that there'd been some a couple of close family members that had had cancer so obviously we did all of our research and everything and we were able to get them the hundred thousand pounds worth of decreasing life insurance over 19 years for a monthly premium of just under 120 pounds per month now, obviously, some people may be thinking, you know, obviously, that seems like quite a high premium in, in, in sort of the grand scheme of things, £120 per month. But, you know, obviously, what needs to be bared in mind with this is that we do have people there who do have sort of like family medical history. There is the, the heart complication. And also, they are in their early 60s as well, which does mean that the, the pricing is probably higher than probably what a lot of people see when they're advising clients. So I think that's a really good one to sort of put out there as well. And I think it's that thing as well is that even though that premium is quite high ultimately they have they have that mortgage there <laughs> and you know even though the premium is high that doesn't mean that the mortgage suddenly disappears you know they really do need life insurance and um, and it was obviously a, a very positive thing that our team were able to arrange that for them so um obviously just uh, just given a case study there so vicky um is there anything extra that you'd like to talk about at the moment? I know obviously you work at AIG. I know that I've said quite a few times how much I love Smart Health. I believe it's just had its first year anniversary. Um, is there anything that you want to say about that service and how it's going at the moment? Yeah, um, as you say, it's had its first anniversary, 28th of August last year. I can't believe how quickly it's gone, although it's been a, a very full year. Um, who knew on the 28th of August um, uh, about COVID and obviously then the absolute um, benefit of having a remote GP service so um, the take up for our GP service was you know astronomical as you would expect what we didn't really expect really although was the um, take up the extra take up on things like the nutrition advice fitness advice and also the mental health um, service um, but the interesting thing I think is from talking about heart attacks etc etc from the data we have a number of symptoms um, are in the top reasons to speak to a GP. Um, these are chest pain, anxiety, and depression. They're the top three things that the GPs have been contacted about. Um, and cardiology makes up about 4% of the onward referrals to a specialist. Um, so whether that's you know, via the NHS or private medical insurance. Um, and where customers have sought a second opinion, 8% of those cases are actually for cardiology, so for, for cardiac problems. Um, but the majority, uh, I'm sorry, and the majority of the people seeking a second medical opinion are between 40 and 49, which is really interesting. 46% of people are between 40 and 49. What that yes. tells us is by the age of 40, really, um, that's when all these services become extremely valuable now the average age of someone I don't, I don't know what it is Catherine with cure but I think the average age of someone taking out a life insurance policy certainly with AIG is 42 
Oh, wow. Um, so those services really are valuable um, yeah. to those people who are taking out insurance, but obviously younger as well and yeah, older, yeah, but, but that's an average. So um that's, so, yeah, that's so, older than i thought it would be i have to say you know I, I, oh, I don't be, yeah yeah because um obviously for us people come to us because they have a risk and a risk doesn't differentiate by age i mean obviously there are certain things that tend to be higher you know obviously as you say when people start to get into the 40s maybe more things start to get diagnosed at that point but yeah we um yeah i wouldn't say that that would be our average age i would think that we probably speak to to younger people many times but um but no that's that find that really interesting yeah, so I think from a provider's point of view, we've got the whole mix. So we do obviously yeah. whole of life, uh, of course, you know, the other yeah. end, and, and our care cover with whole of life, which is our whole life policy that pays out 25% if you need care cover. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so our average age is probably a little bit higher than, than, a, than, a, you know, than a, um, a distributor, if you like. Yeah, um, so, yeah, so Smart Health has been absolutely fantastic. We've had, um, you know, lots of people, lots of emotional thank yous uh, for the service. So, um, interesting, um, interesting times. And I think we won't go backwards now, you know, there's more we can do and we're continually looking about how we can improve or build on the service um, and ensure that as many people have got access to it as possible. And of course, the added benefit of that is it takes the strain off the NHS. So the yes. NHS, so if we do have a second wave, which is looking unfortunately likely at the moment, then again, if all the GPs and everybody get called back to the hospitals and the Nightingale hospitals, yeah. um, then there is a solution. People, customers do have an option if they still need to see a GP for them, the children or whatever it happens to be. So if people haven't already got an insurance policy, even if it's just for that reason, they need to get one. They need to have you know, a backup yeah. plan, I think. Um, so, so I think that's fantastic. And also things like um, with the smart health, um, uh, a lot of the uh, we lo a lot of elderly people, particularly or sick people, didn't want to and still don't want to go to the pharmacy yeah. um, to pick up their prescription. So we offer a free delivery service so that they don't have to if they're self isolating, you know, they don't actually have to leave their home. Um, so I think it's more services like that that are invaluable at a time like this. Never has yeah. there been, you know, a more important time to to talk about value added services and have have them. Yeah. And I think, you know, if advisors um, are struggling with trying to explain the reason to have protection, then, you know, normally we put up case studies, don't we? And I know you've yeah. had one earlier, but there's a hundred of them on the TV every single day. You know, we yeah. hear about this all the time. There's 45,000 case studies in the UK alone. You know, really, it is time that everybody um, did understand not only the, the benefits of a, a life insurance policy or a critical illness policy, income protection, but but also the value added services that they can use throughout the life of the policy, not just at the end when there's a claim. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I've, I've said this before as well, that, you know, at Cura, we have our group insurances uh, through AIG and all of my team, you know, when we started, you know, we were sort of saying, right, well, this is obviously the cover and this is the smart health that comes with it and everything. And they were all just, in many ways, the team were just flabbergasted in the sense of what, this is all coming with the, you know, basically they're like, what, I'm going to get all this? Fantastic. Yeah. And I think multiple members of our team have been using it. And I know we, as ourselves, are a family of five and four of us have used it in a sense since lockdown, you know, just because it is so so helpful and especially I think as well as I'm not saying you know specifically in this situation but you know as a parent with young children you just don't know what's going on um obviously they are children they get called here there and everywhere and so especially with all the symptoms of coronavirus and stuff just having them to hand is is absolutely fantastic and I think as well from an advice point of view 
And obviously when you speak to people as an advisor a lot of the time, I think it's always one of those things and it gets sort of like drilled into you, I think, you know, when um, obviously we're directly authorized now, but we used to be part of a, a financial network and it's kind of drilled into you in some ways, you know, always go for the cheapest policy, make sure you offer the cheapest one. It must be the cheapest one. And um, there's sort of like an example that really stands out for me, um, especially since now we're directly authorized and we're not necessarily held to those things is that obviously, you know, if you can, you want to get as cheap a price as possible, but it is more than that. So I'd been speaking to somebody, it wasn't that long ago, and um, we had the option of um, a cheaper policy or policy with AIG. And I just said to them, okay, you know, we can go for that one. I will present that to you because it's the cheaper one, the cheapest one that we have, but I would like you to consider this one because for 30p more a month, so £3.60 a year, you, your partner and your children will all have access to this. And it, the person didn't even think in a sense, they just yeah. said, I want that one. You know, it's, a no <laughs> it just, yeah. it's an absolute, no, it was, it was just for me. It was like, it was three pounds 60 a month, you know, and you just, Not even the price of the cappuccino. <laughs> I know you just couldn't. And, and I have to say that is countless times that's happened to me. I've said, to, you know, I always say to people, I will give you the cheapest option because I know that's what you'd like to have as a comparison, but there is more to these things than just what's going on price. But, you know, some people ultimately need to go for the cheapest option. And, you know, some people do actively choose the cheapest option, but I have to say for me that with any kind of, um, of these services you know whenever I've got like an option where I've got that you know I've, I've given them that presented that option of like this one has in a sense no value adds and this one does and I think as well because let's face it life insurance is in many ways ridiculously cheap it is so so cheap and um, and I kind of always think that you know insurers it, it can't really compete on being the lowest priced anymore <laughs> in many ways the competition is kind of the value adds and um, and I think you know it just it really stands out if an insurer has these things Absolutely. And I think you're, you're right what you say. I mean, if you can present it to someone saying like, you know, for the cost of a cappuccino, do you want all this service? Really, it, it is a no brainer. It's so it's so important. And I think the other thing just to, to, to mention on, on smart health is the next generation, our kids, my kids, the, the early 20s and your kids, Catherine, when they yeah. grow up, they won't want to drive into um, the GP surgery, make an appointment, go in, wait, be help kept waiting. They want something now, you know, it's instant. Absolutely. So an example is my daughter came around, my eldest one said, oh, I think I'll be bitten by a spider. And she showed it to me and I said, well, I don't know, you need to go to the GP. She said, oh, I can't bother doing that. I said, well, you know, use the GP. You know, we've got yeah. AIG, obviously, smart health. Um, within, within some, I think it was like 25 minutes, she uh, was showing on, on her phone this spider bite. Yeah. And the doctor said, that's shingles. Oh, wow. Um, so um, quite quickly, she got a diagnosis. Now, she could have gone and spread that shingles to everybody and anybody who yeah. she was, because she felt okay. Um, and one of her friends is pregnant, and that would have been oh. horrific. Oh. So because she couldn't be bothered to go, because she yeah. didn't, you know, it was just a spider. So I think it's really important that we understand that smart houses for the next generation is exactly how they want to, you know, see a GP or they want to, you know, talk about their nutrition or their health. They don't want to go and speak to a nurse or a doctor and be kept waiting and, and exact. So, you know, this yeah. is for the next generation too. I think that's a really, really valid point because we are absolutely, as you say, the younger generations, it's all about now. It's like, I, for me, absolutely. I kind of think of my kids with Netflix, you know, it's all like they don't have to wait every week <laughs> you know, for that next episode to come out. Yeah. It's just all on demand constantly, everything. We're, we're very, very spoiled, really. And, um, and yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely, you've got that right there. We're just, we're so used to instant information, instant getting of anything that we want that it's, um, 
yeah if it takes a little bit of effort and if it is not essential it's not something yeah. we really want to do like go to a doctor over a spider bite then we're just going to not bother well obviously thank you so much is there anything that you would like to sort of like leave our listeners with in regards to any sort of final thoughts um i think i think for the advisors um who are listening um you know hopefully this has explained if you weren't already convinced the value of um, protection and particularly value added services for potential customers if you haven't got life insurance hopefully this has explained to you why you need it you know you never think it's going to happen to you um, but it will happen to you one day it could happen to you it happened to me um, and for other providers um, and obviously for my colleagues you know we all continue to do what we can in this really trying and testing time um, to make life as easy as possible for advisors and customers alike, you know, to get through it and help where we can. But if you have any ideas and thoughts of your own, then, you know, the best ideas will come from you. So, so let us know what we should be doing to support you. Um, so I think that's how I would leave it there, Catherine. I think that's lovely. That's a really nice way of doing it. So obviously we're coming towards the end of it and we of course have the famous truth or lie feature. So we'll just do a very quick one because I know we've obviously had a, a really good chat today. Um, so for our truth or lie um, this week, I am going to say that and we're going to do it on films, everybody. So I'm going to say that the last film that I watched was The Avengers. And Vicky, would you like to say what yours is? So the last film I watched actually was Spartacus. Nice, Spartacus. Well, thank you very much for listening, everybody. And thank you so much, Vicky, for joining me. It's, it's really, really good to, to hear your experiences and for people to understand what could potentially happen in, the, in those situations. I'm going to be back in two weeks chatting with Emma Thompson from British Friendly. And we're going to be talking about her experience being diagnosed with cancer and claiming on her insurance policies. If you'd like a reminder of the next episode, please do drop me a message on social media or visit the website www.practical-protection.co.uk. And don't forget that you can also, if you are part of the insurance world especially, you can claim a CPD certificate for uh, listening to this. But um, thank you. Thank you so much, Vicky. Thank you, Catherine.